You are listening to a podcast from The National. I'm looking at a photo we published in our newspaper a couple of weeks ago. It's a panoramic of the old city of Mosul, and it shows the destruction, the complete demolition of every possible structure that's in the picture. There's a mosque in the middle that looks like a bomb just tore away one of its sides. There are electricity poles erect at odd angles with the wiring hanging from them in tangles. And there's a few covered women navigating a staggering amount of rubble on the floor that litters what I imagine was a street. That's the image we get of Mosul now. That's the only picture portrayed by the media. The battle against ISIL, the liberation of the city, was so destructive that not a single structure or semblance of normal life exists. But then, I spoke to Florian Newhoff, our foreign correspondent who was in Mosul during the battle. Although he spoke about the gruesome destruction, he gave us a different impression of life in the city. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nasr al-Wesmi, and this is what Florian had to say about the liberation of Mosul from ISIL fighters and how the city fares weeks after the victory. You spent a lot of time with the soldiers, and I just wanted to get your impression of how they view this victory. Well, uh, I think, um, obviously, they're, they're very pleased and happy and that uh, they've won this victory uh, in a battle that lasted for about nine months, um, but probably they are overriding... Uh, feeling is of relief um, that it's over now. Um, you could see towards the end of the battle that there was more reluctance uh, to fight, not that they were uh, deserting or anything, but their enthusiasm had waned uh, considerably. Um, you probably also have to mention in this context that the Iraqi military um, have been engaging in um, pretty extensive uh, reprisals towards um, uh, people who they consider to be ISIL members. Um, so in the final days and maybe weeks of, of the battle when the fight was really just concentrated in uh, Mosul's old city, they were um, shooting a lot of uh, men uh, they, they capture, captured because they considered everyone uh, in that part of town, you know, still fighting in the, in the last era controlled by ISIS to be, to be ISIS. Um, so I think an element of vengeance also comes into it, at the, came into it in the very last stages, or even of the battle, or even before. Um, but primarily, I think they're relieved it's over. Uh, although it's not over for many of of these uh, men, especially the special forces, because now they will have to they'll have to fight in other parts of Iraq where ISIS still uh, still has a presence, like uh, Hawija, and uh, the next battle will be um, Tel Afar. Uh, which is a town quite close to the Syrian border, where which is still held by ISIS. Talking about the struggle going forward, you, you recall the story of an old man from the Zinjili neighborhood in West Mosul, an area that you wrote about that's completely battered from what was one of the most brutal parts of the fight. Uh, in your article, he talks about how the financial terminal that the war has brought, his daughter, uh, was caught in an explosive booby trap while running for Iraqi lines. And now the family is trying to make ends meet with medical bills and just general displacement. You've dealt with a lot of people there. So what is the situation of those displaced from the fighting? Where are they living and what does the roadmap for them look like? Yeah, so um, hundreds of thousands of them are living in displacement camps, which are um, pretty rudimentary affairs, which uh, 
are not good places to live in, in in the searing summer heat. I mean, we're looking at temperatures of around 50 degrees in the daytime now. Um, there's no air conditioning. Um, health services are basic. Um, and it's pretty cramped in, in, in these camps. Um, many more, I think, it's more than in the camps, more are living with uh, relatives either in uh, Mosul and East Mosul, which hasn't been as heavily destroyed, or in, even in West Mosul, or they've gone to other cities. Um, I, I, I think it will take a, a long time for Mosul to recover. Um, Iraq is not known for its efficiency when it comes to uh, construction or reconstruction or really just about anything. Um, so it will take a, a long time for these, uh, for the infrastructure in particular to to be um, repaired. I think that you know, people, critics or analysts are saying that there will be a huge amount of uh, um, corruption involved in the process, which will obviously diminish the results. Um, that said, um, uh, when you go through East Mosul, uh, nowadays, which was less heavily destroyed, much less heavily destroyed, um, you see that uh, you barely notice that there has been a, a war there. Um, a lot of the damage has already been repaired by, you know, by, by private people rebuilding their homes or their, their shops. Um, so while I'm not so optimistic on uh, infrastructure repair, um, the private enterprise uh, of people is, is quite remarkable and. Uh, uh, you'll probably see them rebuilding their homes fairly quickly if they can find the means to do so. Um, and it's got to be said that some infrastructure repairs have been, you know, visible. I could see some some uh, water pipes being repaired uh, in West Mosul, even as the battle wasn't, you know, totally over yet. So I guess there is a will to uh, to uh, make things right, but um, we'll have to see how that progresses. Whenever you look at photos of Mosul uh, on the news, you just see a city that's completely destroyed. I mean, in complete rubble. And I'm a little surprised that you're telling me that part of parts of it are actually it feels a bit more uh, like it's functioning. Can you explain to me? I mean, what exactly happened? And I mean, what what does the city look like as a whole if you were to walk from one end to the other? Mm. Um, well, I suppose the media always uh, deals with it in extremes, and it will always, um, if like reporting on a battle, show you the destroyed parts. <laughs> um, but there are actually um, quite large parts of Mosul which are fairly unscathed, especially, particularly in the in the east of eastern side, of the east, east, east bank of the Tigris. If you look on uh, maps, of, you know that map of destruction. The UN gives out these these, these uh, maps, for instance. You can see that the destruction and the airstrikes are much more concentrated in the west of the city where the fighting was a lot heavier. Um, so firstly, the east side of Mosul is, is in much better shape and, and a lot of the damage has been repaired, as I said earlier. Uh, but also in the west, there are still the neighborhoods which are not that badly destroyed, um, especially in the uh, southwest uh, where you know, the fighting wasn't as intense. And um, sort of in the west, west. Um, so it is a mixed picture, but at the same time, there is also very heavy destruction, and some areas are very heavily destroyed. Um, particularly the areas that were liberated towards the end uh, tend to be a lot more uh, destroyed because um, I think the Iraqis were 
was getting frustrated with their progress and they were losing a lot of fighters, a lot of soldiers. So they had to compensate with artillery bombardment and, uh, and airstrikes. Um, so the, the northwest and the center of town are probably the most uh, destroyed parts of Mosul. Uh, so going back to something that you just mentioned, going back to how the media deals with extremes, when we read articles about Mosul, we read headlines like ISIL defeated or Mosul liberated. We imagine that we imagine that this is a conventional war, where one legitimate side defeats the other, and some sort of uh, surrender documents are signed, like you'd imagine, you know, World War II or something. But it isn't exactly like that. So, I want to know where where has ISIL gone? Uh, are they truly eliminated, or will they exist in a different form, a different manner? Well, um, I think experts are saying that. Um I think I mentioned that in the article, uh, that uh, ISIS has been severely weakened in Mosul now. Um, they have lost a lot of fighters there, a lot of the people who joined them there are dead. Their sleeper cells have been exposed by the very fact that they came out in the open. Um, at the same time, uh, when I spoke to security um, personnel who on the east side who were already like, dealing with, with like, rounding up sleeper cells, they, they will still say that, uh, um, that there are a lot of you know, ISIS sympathizers of varying degrees um, who have to let loose. And, and again, the Iraqi security services are not uh, particularly efficient always at, at, at dealing with, with, with these uh, threats. Um, so I don't think Mosul will be in a state where it was in 2014 when ISIS fighters overran the city within a matter of days. Because there was a lot of already homegrown support for the for the terror group in the city at that time, and, and like a, a very heavy, very strong network of sleeper cells and sympathizers. Um, but I think you will also still see that there are, you know, amongst the population, uh, some part of, uh, of that population will still be um, sympathetic to to ISIS. Um, in, in Iraq as a whole, you still have uh, the Sunni Triangle. There is still a significant residue of ISIS um, and some areas which are still held by them. I was talking earlier about uh, Tel Afar, although that city is surrounded, but that will be quite a tough fight that will commence soon. Then further down south in the desert areas, you have a lot of areas that aren't really controlled by the Iraqi security forces, and then you have the Hawija uh, pocket, which is also going to be quite a tough fight, and um, I think um, you, you can say with uh, you can say that ISIL has been defeated more or less as a land holding force, you know, minus those pockets that I mentioned, but it will continue to live on as an insurgency and then as, a, as a terror group, and I think there's a lot of work to be done going forward to to eliminate them as a significant force, um, a significant terror threat. And the answer can't just be uh, militarily. Military, there has to be, uh, you know, the politics have to change in Iraq to uh, to uh, eliminate the grievances that uh, lead people to, to join a terror group uh, as, as despicable as, as ISIL. Right. And, but we've seen this time and time again. Iraqi forces liberate or emerge victorious only to lose whatever they've gained. So how does Iraq keep Mosul safe? How does it keep Iraq safe from another widespread terrorist insurgency? I think the obvious uh, answer that is bannied about is always that you know the sectarian politics that uh, um, the 
former Prime Minister uh, Nouri al-Maliki um, uh, perpetrated were, were, were very damaging to to, uh, to Iraq and, and led to a lot of you know, support for extremist groups such as ISIL. Um, I think one thing that's maybe a bit under the surface but equally as, as damaging is, is corruption. Um, I think then if you have such vast resources which are squandered on on, on, a, on, a, on an elite uh, that just packs the money away into Swiss bank accounts or use it to sort their own patronage networks, you are always going to have a country where you have a high degree of dissatisfaction, unemployment, uh, material needs, um, which are now quickly exploited by, by um, extremists uh, such as ISIL or even you know the, the Shia militias, which are growing in, in, in power and, 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 and stature. In Iraq, so so I think the problem is is very systemic, um, and and I think often uh, sectarian grievances are exploited by 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 people in, in high positions in government to to um, to distract from the fact that they're actually um, um, grabbing the resources of the country for themselves. Okay, Florian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Last week, the UK and EU wrapped up a second round of negotiation over Britain's impending departure from the bloc. Regardless of the terms of Brexit, the UK is inevitably going to be left in a more isolationist position. This comes at a time when global partnerships are needed more than ever in the face of challenges such as climate change and the battle against terrorism. To get a better understanding of where this leaves the UK on the global stage, I'm joined by Damien McElroy, the London Bureau Chief. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. I mean, what is the UK's role in international politics today, especially considering its imminent exit from Europe? I think of it a bit like being in an airlock in space. Um, it has decided to leave uh, one block, and it is not yet fully transited through to the new reality. So in a sense, it is in um, a kind of limbo where other countries may have thought of Britain as part of Europe, it may have thought of Britain's imperial heritage, it may have thought of Britain as a great voice for free trade, as a commercial power, as a big financial centre. Some of those things will continue to be true, other things won't, and it's not yet clear where they will end up. So, in a sense, we're waiting to see what happens. Britain impact on the world is necessarily diminished as a result of that because everyone listens to what the British say but they don't quite know what it means. So you have this very difficult temporary situation in which the country is um, obviously and rightly obsessed with how it's going to exit Europe. It is also trying to open up new links with other countries and it's trying to uh, establish preliminary free trade talks with all sorts of countries from Australia through to the US where a British cabinet minister was this week trying to get the outlines of a free trade deal. But at the same time, it doesn't really have um, anything it can say with certainty. So I think everyone else is saying, well, We'll wait to see where you end up before we um, talk seriously. Speaking of which, how does Theresa May fare on the world stage in the face of more powerful and popular leaders such as Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron? Well, it's very difficult because um, 
she is seen as someone who essentially fell into the job as a result of circumstance. She then had a early general election to try and shore up her position and to present herself as uh, someone with her own mandate, and that largely failed. She's still in office, but she doesn't have the majority she wanted, and there's very much a feeling that her time in Downing Street is limited. Against that, she's got the German Chancellor, Angela Angela Merkel, who's seen as uh, the most powerful figure in Europe, who's seen as someone with a very strong grip on her job. She's a very credible and charismatic figure, and she is in some ways lauded as the most experienced and influential uh, leader in Europe and in the West. Um, Emmanuel Macron is new, he's vibrant, he's promising to reinvent France. He's got energy, he's dynamic, and he surprised everybody, and he does have a mandate from his own people. So in some ways, Theresa May is squeezed by all those factors, and she's also squeezed by her own personality, which is more retiring than outgoing, and she just doesn't seem to have the ability to reach out to people in ways that makes a difference. You mentioned this earlier, and we actually had an article about this uh, this week written by Colin Randall about the rivalry between London and Paris over financial services. Damien, give us a bit of an idea of how this will affect business in Europe and in the UK. Well, Paris looks very covetously on London. It looks over the sea and it sees um, this very big metropolis where there are 300,000 French citizens living, working, being entrepreneurs, generating wealth. It also looks at London and it sees a large financial centre and it wants a part of that. Um, There is rivalry between Paris and Frankfurt over which will be the European financial capital, or more properly, which will be the Eurozone financial capital. Uh, Frankfurt obviously has the European Central Bank, and it's got the much bigger German economy. Paris sees itself as the place where bankers and investors would want to live, and thinks it can leverage this. Um, I would add one note of caution, which is one of the big reasons why London is such a big financial centre is following World War II, it became the capital of the what was known then as the um, euro-dollar market. And it is partly a big financial centre because it is does stand apart from uh, Europe. And um, places like Hong Kong, for example, have shown that it's not necessarily about being part of a place that means that you're the financial centre. Sometimes investors prize that autonomy. Let's shift a bit to uh, the region. Ahead of its impending Brexit, how do you, how much further do you see the UK's involvement in the Arabian Gulf as it looks beyond Europe to build its ties? Well, even before Brexit, you had a move by uh, David Cameron, who was then the Prime Minister, to uh, re-establish a military presence in the Gulf. And, you know, the first British military base east of Suez was opened um, just a few months ago, a few months before Brexit in in Bahrain. So the British government really wants to be engaged with the Gulf. It sees a lot of close alignment between its interests, both um, strategic and security, with the Gulf. It 
um, admires the growth and dynamic economies here, and so it needs to reach out. There has been quite a bit of work done on some form of new trade association with the GCC. I know there's a great appetite for that in Whitehall. The question is whether that deal can be done in a way that would allow for free trading links, um, especially given the current situation in the GCC itself. And we'll look to see how that relationship develops further in the future. Thank you so much, Damien, for joining us today. Pleasure. And finally, I'm joined by my colleague, John Dennehy, who wrote an article about one of the last vestiges of sand golf, a local take on the international sport. Thanks for joining us, John. Nasser, good to be here. So, John, give us an impression. Uh, what is it exactly? How does one play sand golf? Well, sand golf is a, a pretty interesting part of the sporting uh, life and community here in the UAE. It it basically harks back to the oil days, uh, the, the pioneering days of the, the 50s and 60s when you had, I guess, mainly Western oil men who came here. They would have been interested in, in golf. They would have played it back home. But, of course, there would not have been grass courses here at the time. So it was it was sort of a, a, a kind of an effort to play the game using what they had around them. So they would have essentially fashioned holes from uh, oil drums, uh, from pieces of wood, and they would have made pretty pretty rudimentary greens. That's the history. Um, at one time, it was very popular around the country. It was very popular in the region. Um, but as we've seen the growth of, of green grasses, particularly uh, here in the UAE, the game of sand golf has uh, dwindled. I mean, today we have, I think, four uh, public courses remaining. Um, and one of those courses, as I talked about in the article, is now closing for, well, it's closing indefinitely, but what they're telling us is that it's just four weeks. I imagine uh, it's better for the environment to have a sand golf course, especially when, you know, heat hits, you know, 50 degrees here. But, I mean, you've mm -hmm. played, you've played normal golf, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. uh, you told me earlier that you played sand golf as well. Yes. So, Explain to me, how does the uh, the experience differ between the two uh, terrains? It's pretty, I mean, the, the game isn't that different on both, but the difference on sand golf is that essentially what you do is you carry a small piece of AstroTurf with you. And when you when you drive the ball off, you, you get to your ball on the fairway, which is sand. Um, you place the ball on this little piece of AstroTurf and then you hit on again. Now, the greens are called browns. And they are slicked down with an oil... Um, and sand composite to, to ensure a flat uh, potting surface. Uh, and what you also need to do is you need to, uh, there are usually a couple of brooms by the side of the brown so you can remove footprints. Um, and as you pointed out quite correctly, it's, it also needs a lot less water than some of the grass courses, so it's much better for the environment. So, I mean, what are the reasons why uh, they're closing down uh, this course that you just mentioned? Well, it's, this is the difficult part. I mean, we, we, we're not sure exactly what's happening. I, I, I don't think it's, it's... We can't say for sure that it's being closed down. What's happening is that the, the current operators um, and the, the club is essentially owned by the airport. So uh, they've been unable to agree new terms for them to continue operating. And the, the airport are now looking for a new operator to take up uh, the course and the larger complex. There's also tennis courts. There's also archery. Um, a rugby club is also playing there as well. So uh, all we know at the moment is that it's going to be closed for four weeks. Um, but there's obviously larger questions about the game and its viability here. So that's really where we are. And I mean, 
this is really a, a sport, as you explained. And you were telling me before the show that you know it's been around since the 50s and 60s. Mm. It's it's a product of, of the UAE mm. and, and of expats coming mm. here. Is, is that true? Yeah. It's not just the UAE. It's, it's also in the region, anywhere where, where people like those oil men in the 50s and 60s came, you usually will find Sangolf. There was courses in Oman. There was courses in Bahrain. It, it's very common in this area. One point I would like to make is that I, co- I covered this for a longer story in January, and a lot of these courses did historically exist in areas where there wouldn't have been a lot of things to do outside of your daily work routine. Um, for example, there's still a course in Al Dafra, which, which is in the western region close to Ruiz, which is a very important oil and gas uh, uh, installation there. And the Sand Golf course that's there also acts as a type of community center. So, I mean, they have social events there. People drop in, they catch up with their friends. It, it's an outlet and it's something to do at the weekends where usually there's not a whole lot to do. So it, it provides, it's like a community service and that's very important here. So when we go back to the whole idea of it being a bit more you know, environmentally friendly mm. and it really being kind of, uh, like you said, a community mm. uh, 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 center point for these people, I mean, the, the the suspension or whatever it is that's happening to this course, and it's the one that's out by the airport, right? Correct, yeah. It's called uh, it's Al-Ghazal Golf Club, and it's uh, close to the Abu Dhabi airport, yes. Does that indicate maybe that the sport might be dying? Well, I think there's no doubt about the fact that it's facing a very, very uncertain future. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, again, to go back to the article I wrote in, in, in January, it's a game that is under an extraordinary amount of pressure because most people who come to golf now will want to play on grass. They, they don't want to play on sand. And the problem the clubs have is that the members who are playing there have, have been doing so for a, a long time, 20, 30 years. And when they retire or when they leave the UAE, it's very difficult to entice new members. So it's, it's, it's dwindling and it, it faces a tough future. Yeah. So if this move, I mean, maybe this move with Al-Ghazal won't be permanent. We don't know for sure yet. Um, if it if it is permanent, then you're left with three. Um, one of those is very small anyway in Alain. And then Al-Dafra also is, is facing a bit of uncertainty as well. And then you've got one in Sharjah. And the, the, everything else is green. So it, it's an uncertain future. It's a tough future. And maybe 20, 30 years, it, there's a good possibility we won't have any more sign golf. Well, hopefully uh, it isn't permanent and it will return and... Uh unique sport to the UAE uh, comes back. Thank you so much for joining us, John. I'd like to thank my guests, John Dennehy, Florian Newhoff, and Damien McElroy for joining me on another episode of Beyond the Headlines. You can find all The National podcasts on our website, www.thenational.ae. I'm Nasr al Thank you, and goodbye. <laughs>